And I was working in a news aggregation app field. And I just realized I don't believe in what I do. I don't believe in it. I don't feel connected to this area. And uh, I came back to assess, you know, what makes me happy is pizza and it's ideas. I love that. And we're really blessed to not just have good, but great problems in our area. We've got fantastically great problems um, because they're almost impossible. There's never enough resources or people to do it. And so we have to be creative. That's the only way we fix this stuff because we're also having a huge decline in, I think, civic understanding and civic involvement. And so my best advice to anybody who's like, boy, God, this is so complicated. I don't even know where to start. Just start. That's all it is. So just get involved. Don't underestimate yourself. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. I often feel like we should keep broadening ourselves. When we talk about farm-to-table talk, I think we can just talk table talk and from farms to forests, and sometimes the forests and the farms kind of get all mixed in together. And there's so many issues that where the where we depend on what's going on in the, in the forest, I'm going to babble on here until I get my guests to jump in. A lot of people have paid attention to agriculture and uh, paid attention to California because of forest fires and concerns mm-hmm. about forest fires. And it's getting people thinking about it, what it means to their their livelihoods, what it means to food availability, lots and lots of different issues. But I'm happy to welcome Jaron Brandon, who is uh, on the Tuolumne County Board of Supervisors in California. Mm-hmm. And Jaron, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Roger, great, great to uh, be on here. And, and like you said, I think uh, they're just big crops for all the private timberlands too. So the way we think about forests and how they are and kind of the, the the state they're in right now, I think it has a lot more in common with agriculture and managed public lands and than maybe we initially think. So it's a great opportunity. Well, it's natural resources, and there's what, like eight counties, or I mean, eight states or something, where there's just a large, large percentage of the land Yeah, are national or state forests. Our You're, neighbor, Inyo County, and they're on the east side of the Sierras, they are 98.2% federal lands, um, which is insane to think of running uh, a county and being in an elected position where you don't control 98.2% of what's around you. Even for a county like ours, it's 76%. And on the western uh, side of the United States, we have a huge amount of uh, public lands, you know, stewardship agreements, basically, with the federal government. A lot of state parks, a lot of BLM, a lot of BOR land. So we're dealing with a lot of these agencies that uh, we're trying to figure out how can we help them, work with them to be able to cut this kind of green tape, red tape that we have on a lot of these projects and manage it a lot better. Because what we're doing right now is is it's very scary for communities that, you know, look to fire season and they're like, is this the one? Is this the one that's going to take us out? You know, this is a vague concept for a lot of people that listen to Farm to Table Talk because mm-hmm. they think that they may be a long ways away from where some of the fires are burning and so forth. But help bring this home to them. To describe where you live and this interface between the, between the forests and populations, both agriculture and just the urban populations. The easiest way to describe where I live, uh, beautiful little mountain communities where people might actually let you into traffic uh, mm-hmm. every now and then. We live up near Yosemite. 
Um, we split that between Mariposa, which has the valley floor, and we kind of have the, the back 40 with Hetch Hetchy um, up in the hills. And we're working class, you know, good community, beautiful art scene, uh, very tourism reliant, but also very natural resource dependent. And one of the major concerns, though, that we have, we've always traditionally had a, a large timber influence, a lot of mills, a lot of mill workers that supported families for generations. Um, that really fell off within the last 30 to 50 years where we're now down to and recovering a timber industry, a biomass industry um, that's, I think, becoming this uh, real boom uh, for the area but for or boom uh for a long time was was really ailing from you know policies with spotted owls and various you know various environmental things that were not i think focused on how do we actually make that ecosystem uh work well a lot of people might tune on you know the news and, and look and see the forests are on fire in california and say well you know i live in monterey i live in la i live in the bay area and not realize just how much it, it affects you know we're, we're dealing with a problem that is not isolated to one area or to one issue. Mm -hmm. We're talking about something that affects the sedimentation in the rivers. You know, our watershed is San Francisco's watershed with Hetch Hetchy. So if a fire was to burn through and sediment a lot of little tributaries and areas, you're talking about uh, a potential threat to the you know very lifeblood of a lot of our urban areas. You talk about our schools closing, um, you know, besides the pandemic, smoke was the number one reason it has huge health impacts across the state um, as these happen. It's a massive amount of biodiversity loss in these fires that are high intensity and cook the bacteria out of the soil and much as the trees and the roots and, and everything to where we're losing forest land that was previously productive and had a lot of different species and replacing it with kind of brush moonscapes that that may never actually come back without human reintervention so our our what happens in our neck of the woods has massive impact for the state even if we're not the biggest player by population or money in, in town boy you said a lot of things that i causing me to think of it differently one of them was cook the bacteria out of the soil that's a kind of murder that i don't know that mother nature <laughs> wants us to have occur yeah i mean we talk about how important the microbiome is and now we're able to trace our health back to you know foods that are produced in soils that are rich and they've got a uh microbiome Absolutely. that is rich and so these fires, I never really thought of them killing bacteria right. and how long that would take to recover. You can think of it like you got a, a ball in a cup, you know, and you're shaking the ball in the cup. And within a relative amount of shaking, it's going to be fine. It goes up one side, down the other. If you shake it more aggressively, eventually the ball will pop out and it will fall to the floor. And then to try and get that back into there is extremely difficult. It's kind of a real simple metaphor of what we're facing. You know, fire has always been a part of the ecosystem and it's adapted to it. And that's the shaking. You get a worse fire year, you get a lighter fire year, but it was regular. And tribes contributed to that through, you know, traditional burning. They'd light it behind them every year and, and reduce that fuel. Uh, we got so good at stopping fire and then logging that that just kept building up. It's the cup shaking and shaking more and more that now for many of these areas, like after the rim fire, we'll have 200,000 acres of burned land with with nothing left. And what I mean, cooking the bacteria out, you know, is it is it uh, a truly sanitized environment? Maybe maybe immediately after, but it takes out the trees that within a tolerance, their bark protects them and the soil protects the roots. Um, and some of the seeds are able to adapt and, and grow the next season. It gets so hot 
it will burn everything that is alive. Um, we're talking about fire so hot. If you look up images of, say, paradise where it's hit a human structure, you'll see pools of liquid steel coming out of cars that were caught up in it. Mm-hmm. Their tires completely melting and exploding in the road, asphalt melting. Um, it glasses a lot of the soils within the Sierra by, you know, firing the silicates, kind of like clay, mm-hmm. where then you get all this massive runoff and a flooding risk. So certainly, like, if it's making the soil into ceramic, it's killing everything that's in there. And like you referenced, it's a really complicated little ecosystem we don't see. You know, that soil is precious stuff. Um, that's that's the base of everything that's going to be, you know, growing there and in, into the future. And it really uh, it really destroys uh, a lot of the areas. And what comes back often are invasive species, annuals, brush that outcompete everything that's native. Speaking of native, mm-hmm. Native Americans had a way of dealing with this. So if we go back to before... Um, everybody started coming in and, and taking over these territories. Mm-hmm. How did the tribes deal with it? Say in the area that you were in, it sounds like it might have been healthier in, the, in that area 300 years ago than, oh, yeah. than in, today. In a word, better. <laughs> they dealt with it better. You yeah. know, um, they, uh, and, and I don't like to have this romantic view of Native American societies as, you know, they, they were people, they were cultures that had conflict, they had, they had issues. Um, but the way that they treated the landscape and lived with it, it was in balance. They understood through, you know, tribal ecological knowledge that fire was a part of it. It was not something to be feared. It was something to be respected. It was a tool. So you would have areas like Yosemite. Uh, mm-hmm. Valley, which was, you know, three seasons occupied as kind of hunting grounds and fishing grounds and, and whatnot. Every year or few years, they would light it behind them. And you would have this really nice low intensity burn like we actually see up in that area today when they're doing prescribed fire. But they had done this for thousands of years. And by reducing the fuel and the buildup, um, not only were they able to, I think, reduce the intensity, but they helped to balance the pH of soil. They added nutrients into it. They were able to get rid of overcrowding um, within the trees and the forests. And by removing that, and the federal government and the state government were really the ones that had horrendous policies towards Native Americans, one of which was to say how irresponsible they go and light everything on fire. We have to stop that. we got to put it out every time. Uh, that we're not looking back and saying, wow, we really messed up because these areas that used to burn every few years now haven't burned for 50, 60, 80 years. The fuel built up is 10 times more than what it should be historically. The trees are way overcrowded. And because they're competing for limited resources and our Mediterranean climate that kind of has droughts and that, you see bark beetles come in and you see mass die-offs and you see soils uh, become you know, acidified. And this whole ecosystem becomes even more out of balance where it's more vulnerable. And, and that's the problem. It, it becomes this cyclical issue um, that we've created. And it's a much worse system than what the natives had done. Luckily, I think there's some recognition of that and attempt to with prescribed burn associations and then with traditional fire reintroduce that. Um, and, and bring that back. But uh, there's a lot of work to be done before that can be uh, like it used to be. So how did we get ourselves integrated into the forest? I mean, when we started seeing ranching and we started seeing some towns come up and there mm-hmm. was some mining and people that worked for the timber companies and so forth. Uh, was there planning of, of involved and where people could build or how they could, how they could graze? I'm just trying to 
picture what that might have been like mm -hmm. when there was a time when there were just native lands uh, back in the days when the Indian tribes had the lands and so forth. But then we started having people coming in and mm -hmm. settling. And then even though they're small towns, uh, relatively small towns that are in your areas right now, mm -hmm. and you've got tourists and there's got to be some grazing, some, some agriculture. Absolutely. How well has it integrated into that interface between farming uh, populations and the forest? Well, I mean, the history is long, but it, say before, you know, even 10 years ago, and the Rim Fire really maybe precipitated the kind of modern mega fire rise. For that, fires happened, but it was a normal incident, right? Um, it, it was just something, or, or we were able to successfully stop it. And so I'd say the community, the, the planning, it could always be better. We know the roads weren't built as well back then. I mean, you know, we we're just talking about the house that I've got. It's knob and tube knob and tube is a huge fire risk we ripped all of that out um and so in those ways it wasn't you know there there were always could have been improvements with it um but we forget too like the the short history of that even before the the gold rush and the timber industry you know this was uh, a province it was a state of mexico it was a state of alta right um so before i think is 1848 with the statehood they, they would have been citizens of mexico um that had been there for generations and generations and then we were for another 20 years after statehood not connected with the railroad or or um, um telecommunications lines and so we were kind of operating as this little independent island i think we were a republic for two years during all those times it worked and my area, when you had all these different immigrants from different countries coming into the gold rush and, and moving west, was incredibly diverse. Uh, I think they built for the use. They probably didn't have a lot of government planning with it, but they did more or less live within you know the ecosystem. And towns burned down several times. They built them better. They built them out of brick and you know metal fire doors. I think the challenging part of that is where people in the state start saying it's this it's irresponsible locals. They're in there. They shouldn't have built there in the first place. You know, they don't deserve to exist. It's it's their stupidity that we're paying for. We're subsidizing these folks. And if you can hear a little anger in my voice, there is anger in my voice about it. Um, because what I hear is is something that is very similar to a forced migration argument. This idea that somehow these folks don't deserve to exist. Their communities don't deserve to exist. They're inconvenient when most of these issues were created by the state and federal government and not the local land managers. It's very hard to say that the local government I represent, which has been around since probably 1850 or so, and board of supervisors existed at some point, um, were making the federal land use decisions about fire and, and uh, you know, uh, Native American policies and, and, and all of those. And so we're, we're victims in this thing that I believe deserve compensation. Now, when we're talking about the modern fire, because we can't just ignore it and say, well, if they created this, you know, we do live in a mega fire era. And I think we're building smarter and we're building better. We're looking at evacuation routes and ingress and egress and Cal OES and state support is helping us. We're looking at a project I'm working on with building uh, fire retain, uh, fire retardant, uh, sustainable green building materials that, that this, you know, great intersection with state policies and what we want. We're building better homes that are better insulated. One day, hopefully, PG&E will underground the wires that are constantly causing shutoffs and, and issues in our area. So we are adapting and we are doing better. But I would push back on any narrative that says we are the, the ones that created this. We're victims of that circumstance and we're adapting like we always have as a 
I think, strong but disinvested, lower income, working class, you know, rural community. Um, we have to be creative and we have to be, you know, we got to be tough. Some people would look at, at what you've described yeah. and, and wonder if there is are similarities to Appalachia. Uh, and then mm-hmm. what they see extraction industries and they, so, and those same folks refer to the timber industry as being an extraction industry and agriculture right. as an extraction industry. And we've heard much about all of the problems faced in Appalachia. But is there anything in common with Appalachia, with its uh, impacts and, and the community and the issues the community faces? I, I think so. I mean, it, it's an embarrassment uh, to the state of California as one of the wealthiest nation states in the world to have an area with the level of poverty in areas like I represent. And, and it's not my area specifically. It's, it's really a lot of the Central Valley, but then within all the mountain communities, we're talking some, you know, 35 of the 58 counties are are at a pretty, pretty low level with that. They were very prosperous, and I think, you know, similarly off this kind of either development or extraction, whichever kind of term with it, uh, of natural resources, um, good jobs, environmental policies, that some good, some bureaucratic, uh, really limited that, and they never really recovered because they were not complex economies. And so where you're reliant on coal and coal country and alternative energy goals come along that might be good goals, um, that town is in a crisis because that doesn't exist. They, you know, it's the wagon wheel makers, you know, again. And uh, we were n- on the border of that with mining and timber, the same as they probably had that with, uh, you know, a- international grain exports and, and cotton and, and other things coming in. So I think it is, uh, I think it is really similar. And it's something that the state has to pay attention to when we're talking about equity, we're talking about triple bottom line solutions. Um, that you can't just say that only exists for the urban areas. You have to be looking at not just the poor areas of rich counties, but also the poor counties. And how are we getting them to be involved in it? I think there's hope, though. Sorry, I'm not good at short answers. That's all right. Forgive me, Raj. (laughs) That's a podcast. Okay. Go long if we need to. Fantastic. Hopefully, people enjoy it on the drive. Um, I look at all this hope with the power of technology, right? So here we have a timber industry. You go fall the trees, you go mill it, you sell two by four lumber or whatever you're doing, you know, to simplify it. Um, and and it's a it's been done similarly for a long time. But now, you know, we get some new equipment. Well, now we're talking about cross-laminated timber and gulag and value-added wood products, strong as steel, that are more carbon uh, sequestering, that can build 18-story skyscrapers now in the state, right? And so here's this high-tech engineering degrees needed you know you need folks for the masticators and that that are you know advanced equipment you need the machine repairmen and operators and and all that for you need a bunch of companies creating that and and implementing ai that suddenly these natural resource industries that that are the fundamental basis of everything that we do we're realizing one we prefer to have it here than to ship in the wood from British Columbia or to ship in the mined products from a place, you know, in China or in South Africa that has really bad human rights records, potentially, um, you know, at, at that site. And that, too, um, they're really not just that old, you know, I worked in the mines, my dad worked in the mines. Well, that that guy's kid might be a computer programmer working on that technology. And that, to me, is really exciting um, that if we leverage that, we could see this whole kind of renaissance of the natural resource industry. 
You know, you've really opened the door to the next area I wanted to get into, and that is the future, because simply turning back the clock, you mm-hmm. know, saying, let's go back 300 years. There was no people around. We had no timber industries. We had no ranching. You know, we had no people that were building in, up at the edges of the, of the forest and in, into the forest and so forth. But as you... As you look ahead, what do you find most promising? Uh, what are some of the developments that you can make, you know, feel confident that the future has a really good chance of being better than the recent past? Yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. I think the Internet, in a way, is a great equalizer. Where we're able to get broadband to these communities and teach them the digital literacy and encourage kids to pursue entrepreneurship, they've never been able to compete like ever before. Problem is they they leave. They need a house to live in. They need a you know place that you know, good schools for their families. I think there's these uh, materials and planning. You know, at the state is talking about housing. Finally, I think we're just a hop, skip, and jump away from them actually talking about rural housing and how do we build the same level if we want 3.5 million units rural areas have to be at the table um that we're going to find standards that make that make sense so those kids can stay so they can start a business so they can hire people so they can go work to create the company that'll create that laser weed abating robot that can go down the line props or can go for the next lidar integrated system for saleable timber instead of having to get a ground crew doing a survey so that's a huge opportunity for the area we're seeing state investment in economic development. I think less siloed funds, but a more realization that we need to do better planning. We need multi-benefit projects. Um, and then maybe just the fact that hopefully we're talking about the inequities within the state. Um, maybe a lot of people don't even know w- we exist up there. Um, they don't know the impacts, the unintended consequences of many of these well-intentioned policy directives on a place that it's not meant to apply to or doesn't apply well. I think we're talking about that. The counties are so united behind the rural county representatives, the state representatives, even at the national level, that we are fighting for our districts um, to these levels of government that, again, are trying to solve problems, but they're doing it in a way sometimes it's harmful, and we're trying to help them do government better. So there's all kinds of opportunity for advocacy and, I think, improvement in government that never existed before. And I have no idea if you ask me about AI and chat GPT where that's going to go. But we just see the pace of innovation keeps going and going and going. We just got to get it not just in Silicon Valley. Well, talking about innovation, tell, explain to people what biomass is. Biomass just keeps coming up. And for many of us that, like I grew up in the Corn Belt, yeah. we never talked about biomass. But you mean, what is it and why does it matter to do something with it yeah. when you're in, in the areas you're talking about? I mean, broadly, biomass, it's biotic material that's generally thought to be kind of discarded. So, you know, growing up, uh, you know, go uh, uh, husk the corn there. When you get all the stocks left, what do you right. do with them? Yeah, that's biomass. Right. Now, a lot of times it would just be lit on fire as a solid waste disposal. Maybe it would be fed to to cattle, you know, any any type of byproduct. What we're talking about in the biomass industry is how do we add more value to these products to create things that really solve problems? Because it's, uh, I don't know, know, like those places you see that they're recycling plastic bags and purses, you know, it's taking something that is a, a expensive liability and turning it into something positive that has an economic value. And what we're trying to do is apply that to fallen timber. So when you go take a big diameter tree 
you cut it up, you can make a lot of different saw boards. Lumber has a good value and they're able to sell that even despite the competition issues and all of, uh, you know, regulation. Um, but what do you do for small diameter timber that you can't really make more than a couple two by fours out of it? It's not worth milling or the branches we take off the trees or all the brush that gets cut out of it. Um, or even looking at, you know, agricultural when they follow a field or have to, you know, pull up the, the almond trees after their lifespan. Where does all that go? There's only so much firewood people are going to want for free on the side of the road. So there's a few different approaches. You know, one of them is to turn it into energy. And it's not the same incinerator that most people think. We're talking about gasification systems that are extremely clean, especially compared to, you know, open burning, which is, you know, exponentially um, important where you don't have any alternative, but also much dirtier. Um, and it produces as a byproduct pretty clean energy that, that's really great. You can use that to create green hydrogen. So you take all this waste and suddenly you've got a fuel that can be used on a train or a sea uh, transport or on a heavy, you know, long distance truck, or you could turn it to ammonia for whatever and, and use that. That's a really high value product. We also, on the other side, look at um, traditional value added timber from biomass and think, okay, well, that might've been chairs you know, everybody's bought finger joint lumber, you know, some kind of, you know, plywood stuff. Technically, that's value added wood products. Now we're talking about things like cross laminated timber. Like I mentioned, you know, it, it's it's a certain way of, of high density woods with resin all compressed together. I won't pretend to understand the engineering, but I know you can build a skyscraper out of it. And that's an amazing material because now that biomass takes that skyscrapers, steel and cement carbon imprint or footprint. And you're able to instead put something in there that's actually storing more carbon than it costs. Pretty good when you're yeah. trying to make a carbon inventory to the state of California, right? Maybe you transported it on a green hydrogen powered train. So your carbon negative transportation helped you create a carbon negative building that helped you get the credits that you needed to be able to make your project viable. Um, that's something on the other side of value added wood products. And, and that's just what I might be familiar with and thinking of right now. It's anything, it could be food additives, it could be pharmaceutical stuff and, and medicines, it, it could be things stuff in your pillows, you know, whatever it's going to be. Um, and that's why we have to be trained a lot more on entrepreneurs and engineers on keeping them there. Maybe instead of figuring out clicks on Facebook and attracting our attention, we get some geniuses working in that field to solve, you know, these issues. The key is if you create a market for the materials, Similar to, I think, recycling, and I don't think we do a great job recycling. I think it's pretty inefficient, even if it's a, a nice concept. If you create the market for a quality material, the private market will figure out how to use that. And then the government can help spur that with investment and research and innovation, like with the UC Ag and Natural Resource Program, the Cooperative Extension. And, and I think that just aligns everybody's incentives. You get a more efficient product faster that solves a real problem. Um, that's hopefully where it goes in the future. Well, if it's going to go that way in the future, it's going to come from people, some of the people there that are in the areas already. Some of them are going to have kids, perhaps like you were at one time growing up in, in that area. Oh, I was never a kid. You yeah. were never a no, kid. No, okay, full adult. Yeah, <laughs> in, actually in office. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, but the, there will be kids <laughs> and they will aspire to maybe in some cases learn to learn some of these te technologies yeah. and learn some get into politics and so forth to be able to come back and help these processes along. Well, you close the loop here. Mm -hmm. 
because when we talk about how bad these issues are, but then you can look at all, and we haven't even talked very much about climate change per se, but that certainly is is one of the issues when we talk about all these fires, that's the, the climate change. But when you can now even add hydrogen on the, you know, the hydrogen fuels and so forth, mm-hmm. that's pretty exciting. And, and I just want to end up with, Jaron, kind of quickly about how you find yourself here, why, you know, you've chosen to be on the board of supervisors and you're obviously very committed to bring about some of these changes and speaking for the area that you're working, work for the county. Um, what gets you excited when, what, uh, when you're looking ahead and we sit down and say we're scheduling to have this conversation again in five years, mm-hmm. what do you hope is going to be different that we can summarize then and I can say, okay, Jaron, what got done? So I'm, I love a good brainstorm and I love people. And it took me a while. I was working in a previous job in the Bay. Um, I grew up in, in Tuolumne County, but I went down there for a few years. And I was working in a news aggregation app field and I just realized I don't believe in what I do. I don't believe in it. I don't feel connected to this area. And uh, I came back to assess, you know, what makes me happy? It's pizza and it's ideas. I love that. And we're really blessed to not just have good, but great problems in our area. We've got fantastically great problems um, because they're almost impossible. There's never enough resources or people to do it. And so we have to be creative um, as our default. That's the only way we fix this stuff. What initially got me to run was housing and it was job opportunities. It's how do we provide for those young people so that we get them to be able to live there. You brought up a really important point too. How do we get them to care and go into the, the STEAM fields, right? How do we get them to learn engineering and math? Because we know that that scientific literacy and also those pursuing science, um, it's dropping precipitously in the United States compared to other competing nations. Mm-hmm. We're not graduating enough of the problem solvers we need for the future in these hard science fields. Um, so we have to invest in that type of education. And then on my side, my third platform priority was communication and transparency because we're also having a huge decline in, I think, civic understanding and civic involvement. You know, go look at your local Lions Club, you know, look at your local Seroptimists, um, look at these groups. Most of them, they're aging, they're having trouble recruiting new people, they're being outcompeted by social media groups and video games and all this other stuff. Um, we have to get people, and the government's no different. It's hard to get people to run for office. I'm one of the youngest electeds in the state at that level. We should have more people running that want to do this and, and figure it out. But we have to get them to know, you know, I ask the you know, people listening to this, wherever they may be, your commissioner, your supervisor, your judge, they call us different things. You ever reached out to the guy that's making all these decisions on your behalf, who's your local elected? Have you talked to the woman that runs the county, you know, that provides all the services that you rely on? Um, do you know how they operate, where their board meetings are? Do you know what an ordinance is and how to maybe try and make that change? If we can get kids the educational resources they need and inspire them, if we can teach them how to get involved in their community and their government again um, and be collective you know, in, in, in that mind and, and take responsibility um, for, for our areas, um, and then we give them access to these incredible engineering resources and learning resources and, and programs like UCANR, I think we're going to see amazing things. Even in the five-year time scale, um, we might start seeing those kids graduate out and and really start applying this stuff. And again, maybe the next billionaires won't be a dating app. It's going to be, you know, uh, an ag tech thing. What brought me here is is to talk about that and how do we 
cross over with the research and academia to the local government decision makers where I have things that I bring to the table, but I'm not the one with the the research solution, making the material of the tech. That's not my wheelhouse. If we can partner that and have that communication start, we're going to be able to make sure that this public research has the maximum public benefit it can. And that is a really inspiring future. You know, and I'm inspired by both your journey and some others that have shared journeys with me that have been in San Francisco for a while, or they've been in Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. or some that have been in London and Detroit and Washington, D.C. and others, and they found happiness going back and getting a farm started Mm -hmm. and going back and taking another look at ways that they can get not only the farm, but maybe a relationship with the restaurants and so forth and food hubs and so forth. You might be the first. Mm -hmm. That came back to get into politics, <laughs> but I hope not the last. <laughs> I I don't know if I enjoy what I do, but I love what I do because yeah, I get to wake okay. up and, and help people, you know? So, but I, I am a pretty weird guy to enjoy a lot of these meetings. I, I tell people, you pay me to attend all those meetings. You really don't want to attend yourself. And I do my best to fight <laughs> for you. Well, just in case there's yeah. some people listening to this that would like to figure out how they get inspired in the same way that you do. Is there any place they can look either for... I don't know if you have a website or mm-hmm. if there's uh, some things that you listen to that you want to get a hold of. Well, who would you suggest to people that would have more interest in finding out the, about the subject today mm-hmm. or maybe are also inspired by the journey you've described? I'll tell them they can reach out directly to me. Um, I'm very active on social media, so follow my page and thank you for the opportunity. Um, it's facebook.com slash together with Jaron. That's J-A-R-O-N. And uh, I post a lot of stuff on there. And even if you don't live in the area, you know, go go comment. I, I love to, to hear from you. Um, give me a phone call. You know, my number's on the page. Send me an email. Uh, where I learn from stuff comes from our staff, our community. I get to talk to a lot of people a lot smarter than me. And so my best advice to anybody who's like, boy, God, this is so complicated. I don't even know where to start. Just start. That's all it is. Go to a meeting. Go walk up to somebody you don't know, ask them what they do, and ask them questions about it. And if you do that for a few years, you're really going to get an understanding of what's happening. And then you're in this great position to use that <clears throat> to be able to change what you, what you see. So just get involved and don't don't underestimate yourself. Well, Jaron, I really appreciate your being on. I was going to say farm to table talk, but I think it might be forest to table forest talk. Maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the new one. We'll add that to it. <laughs> I but like that. Timber to table. Timber to table. There we go. <laughs> Jaron Brandon, thanks. Thanks, Roger. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 